1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, Ford supercharging its EV plans with four new factories and 11,000 new jobs. The single largest investment Ford has ever made at one time. CEO Jim Farley.
2: What you're learning here and seeing from Ford is not just a big investment to scale electric vehicles, but we are creating a local supply chain.
0: Another software company makes its market debut. CEO of Amplitude, Spencer skates on the how and the why of his direct listing.
3: If I'm a CEO and I'm selling stock, I want to get the best price for that stock out on the open market. Selling a dollar for 50 cents absolutely makes no sense at all.
0: And one of his backers, Silicon Valley legend Bill Gurley.
1: All the companies that have chosen the direct listing path and they've wildly outperformed their IPO peers, which I think is interesting.
0: Those stories plus... Fed presidents stepping down. And we're getting social. On Twitter, more GameStop drama is unfolding, and we've got some Squawk shoutouts of our own. I saw somebody yesterday
4: saying, you know, what's the price to get mentioned on that show? You know what? It's free, you jerk. I'll mention you for free. bullshit
0: It's Tuesday, September 27th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now.
5: Stand back by in three, two, one, cue, please.
4: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin.
6: Congress is running out of some time to prevent a shutdown and default. Hopefully winter won't come too soon. Yesterday, Senate Republicans blocking a bill that would fund the government to suspend the U.S. debt ceiling. That move, leaving Democrats scrambling up to avoid a possible economic calamity. Lawmakers need to provide or approve, rather, I should say, government funding before Friday to avoid that shutdown in the U.S. risk default if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling by a point that is likely to come in October. That according
7: to the Treasury Department. What do you think? I think Republicans are perfectly willing to fund the government. It's not tied to the debt ceiling, which the Democrats are perfectly able to raise on their own.
4: Did you see the vote on that? It was forty-eight to fifty. So right. they, they, they wouldn't they have gotten it, it 50, anyway. 50. Chuck Schumer actually voted no for a procedural right. thing, so he could do something procedural. Back to the they floor.
7: can go back and do something yeah. they decided on. It's called three hundred four, they can they can. McConnell's well, we, point we, is that you need to raise the debt ceiling. You're doing all this stuff on a partisan basis: the three and a half trillion, the COVID one point nine trillion, all this other stuff. So raise the debt limit on a partisan basis, well, and they, they well, can I mean, do I mean, it.
6: When, when I asked that question to Chris Van Hollen, yeah. A Democrat. Yeah. Why did he push back? This can't happen through reconciliation.
2: You can't put it through reconciliation right now. No, the budget resolution doesn't provide for that. And it still begs the question, why would uh, Mitch McConnell block a vote on the debt ceiling through the regular process?
4: They don't want to do it. They have to tie it to the three and a half trillion dollar bill if they want to do that. They They want to push this through on reconciliation. They have to tie it through to that and they don't have their own party, their own caucus in line on that. The Democrats
7: raised the debt limit for Trump to do stuff. So now they're saying we did it for you. You need to do it for us. Right. Okay, that's not the way. Yeah. Well, they don't need to because they but what because i don't know I, I'm, it's gonna, you're gonna argue about whether what trump did was good or bad what this the republicans do not think that we should be spending five trillion after we've already spent all this, that's what they're thinking. You, you want to spend it? Go right ahead. But that's what they're saying. And if you want to raise the debt limit to, to spend it, they go ahead. But they're making it. You're doing all this on. A, you're not going to get a single Republican. They're, they're vote making it more difficult,
4: and they're slowing down the three and a half trillion dollar bill. That's what they're they're putting pressure on on that right. position of it, using leverage from that. I would be shocked if the two sides didn't find some sort of agreement to, well, to, do, to, to, do, to, to default on the debt would be a really big deal. They'll, um,
7: they'll fund the government. They'll say, we'll do it right now. He, he inter- yeah. McConnell introduced a bill. Why are you smiling with that ridiculous snarky smile? They, they, will, raise, they will raise the stopgap. They'll do what They said they would. He introduced, McConnell introduced something to do stopgap. But we won't won't do the death. It's simple. It's really simple. There's nothing ironic or snarky. The
4: Republicans, what they are doing, I I understood how they were doing this politically to try and slow things down because they don't have any say when it comes to the three and a half trillion dollar bill. I wonder if they're being a little too clever, though, because what they're doing at this point is probably providing some unity for the Democrats to say, wait a second, they're going to let us string this up. It did sound to me like yesterday, after Nancy Pelosi met with her caucus, that there was quite a bit more unity coming out of that meeting than there had been going into that. And that's because they now have 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 a common enemy.
7: They, they, to get to where they need to be on the infrastructure deal, which they're going to vote on Thursday, mm-hmm. the progressives are going to have to vote for it. And, and they're it, still saying they're not like, going to. Well, it, it sounds probably, like they, it had, they had some engine.
4: movement that was moving towards Nancy Pelosi's way on this. Without
7: the three and a half, because it won't be three and a half. We now know it's going to be, I don't know, two, maybe well, one and a we half. Uh, we'll whatever see. Whatever comes out. The two uh, Fed presidents uh, stepping down abruptly yesterday. First, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren said he would leave his job this Thursday, citing health concerns. That's nine months earlier than his planned retirement. And then later in the day, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan uh, said he would step down on October 8th. So like next week or 10 days, whatever. He said the recent focus on his financial disclosure uh, risk becoming a distraction. So he didn't mention health unless he's talking Mm -hmm. like mental health. Uh, both men were the subject of controversy over stock trades last year at a time when the Fed was conducting trillions of dollars in asset purchases uh, to prop up the markets. And, I mean, if you really wanted to be a stickler, you'd say, well, Jay Powell's Sting and he bought a bunch of muni bonds while the Fed was buying muni bonds, which is, I mean, if you want to hang your hat on that. but. Uh, The other ones, I think Kaplan looks. Look, I don't. We don't know. Kaplan was was talking against this book the entire time. But I think what you're going to see is that Kaplan
6: was making you know million dollar plus investment transactions, which is not a lot for him. Given may money. not be a lot for him, but in the grand scheme of the world, I think I it's going to attract a lot of attention. A lot of people are going to spend well, a lot of time did. trying to understand it, it all. D- yeah.
4: and, and you guys saw the timing on this. I mean, all of this had to happen before Jay Powell went before the Senate today. This is the same thing as the Instagram pause news that came out yesterday. That's right. because they're getting right. called before Congress this week, too. And nobody wants to go before Congress and defend some of these positions. Uh, Jay Powell has made it very clear that they don't want the the reputation of right. the Fed to suffer.
3: It is now clearly seen as not adequate to the task of of really uh, sustaining the public's trust in us. We need to make changes, and we're going to do that as a consequence of this. This will be a thoroughgoing and uh, uh, comprehensive review. We're going to gather all the facts um, and and look at ways to further tighten our rules and uh, and standards.
4: So all of these moves happen just before Congress is going to get to start asking questions.
6: All right. By the way, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe the Fed is going to stop doing this, so we don't have to have these types of conversations. So we can actually trust that there's not we, some kind we, of crazy situation We don't situation have to have
7: the, the conversations. I mean, we choose not to have them already by looking at the actual facts of the situation and saying, "Look, that was all within the guidelines." If they want to
4: change the guidelines, fine.
7: I, I'm tired of talking about it. So maybe it I is. Would, a
6: good thing. But don't you think the guidelines should be changed?
7: Don't you think that this might actually be
6: considered yeah, and, progress? and the
4: Fed's actions changed over time. Like like total the transparency. Idea that they were I don't think any things. of them were,
7: were using inside fr- info. I looking at what. Was done. I don't. Do you I don't
4: think the it's, fact
6: it's the that you can't own writing. stock, but they can, makes any sense to you whatsoever? No,
4: and the guidelines are going to change for sure. I, the, okay. the Fed's going to the have fact that
6: the Fed shouldn't be able to to, to buy stock. I think uh, I think, officials I, have a, I, think I have a lot
7: more influence. You in the think Fed, you have more, so okay. I understand that uh, that it would. I mean, when you know. Let, like let me let me raise Biden one more talks. question
4: with this. They, uh, Kaplan and Rosengren were two of the more hawkish voices on the Fed. Interesting that just right. as the Fed Talking is starting to butt. go to taper, that these voices will be standing down. But I, if, if you thought it was going to make a difference and maybe the Fed would act less quickly, you may have to think again just based on, uh, on Powell's it's testimony. All, what he's planning it's all to say a ploy
7: today. to sell before they start tapering. They're going to say, hey, you guys wanted me out. And then they're going to taper and the market goes down and they, they get out without anyone pointing fingers at, oh, now you sell before you taper. So you played right into their hand.
6: Some news for you. Citadel Securities posted its first tweet since January 21st yesterday as the hashtag Ken Griffin lied was trending on Twitter. That hashtag refers to a February hearing in the GameStop saga in which Citadel CEO Ken Griffin said he never requested that Robinhood restrict trading.
2: Mr. Griffin, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Citadel Securities played an important role in meeting the needs of retail investors during the week of January 24th. I want to be perfectly clear. We had no role in Robinhood's decision to limit trading in GameStop or any of the other meme stocks. I first learned of Robinhood's trading restrictions
5: only after they were publicly announced.
6: Citadel's tweets deny claims that Griffin lied in his testimony He's saying Citadel Securities did not ask Robinhood or any other firm to restrict or limit its trading activity on January 27th. The company also tweeted that Ken Griffin and Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenet have never met or spoken. <laughs> it's it's bizarre what's happened on Twitter in this regard because there is, you know, these sort of I don't, we call them memes where people yeah. say these things. They say he said one thing, but the truth is, if you, if you read the testimony, or not the testimony, but the, the filings in the lawsuits and the quotes from the emails, yeah. it is not clear, and I'm sure I'll, the hate will come at me for just saying this, that Citadel was ever asking them to right. restrict trading. There was a conversation clearly about payment for order flow and frankly the fact that there was so much volume at the time that Citadel was likely going to pay them less right. for the order flow. But that was not a, a call to say restrict the trading. And it's, it's as if there's some kind
7: of, uh, like, like people can't see or, or they can't read what's actually no, they want it, they, in the, in the they language. They will postulate things that they want to believe. I know. It gets enough retweets and likes to where it's, it has a life of its own to the point where Citadel said, look, this has exploded into this thing that, that has a danger of becoming, like, factual right. information when it's, there's not a, a, a scintilla of truth in it. I see it with stuff about CNBC. I have never been told to say or do anything about anything right. based on who sponsors a based on Big <laughs> right. Ben. I'd like and to I see somebody see stuff, try
4: to tell you what to say. I see yes,
7: yeah, <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> but I see stuff saying. Last week, I saw something that right. said, well, it's apparent that blah, blah, blah. And then it got, like... All these, these. Oh, it's clear that that's absolutely true. Oh, of course, I saw, it's true. I
4: saw somebody yesterday saying, you know, what's the price to get mentioned on that yeah, show? Because exactly, clearly they're all bought exactly. off. And I thought, you know what? It's, it's free. you jerk. I'll mention bullcrap. you for free. You're an idiot. It's total
7: bullshit. <laughs> none of it was true. And and I, but right. I don't I don't go. You know, I'm not going to address it. On, you know, say right. But they make up stuff. Enough so, people like I it. I don't know. It becomes I would Could, just suggest I believe Citadel. I believe in, in this instance. Read, been, they yeah, now I'm going to get your No, they should read the
6: lawsuit. Look at the lawsuit. Look at what the quotes actually say um, and then look at what people seem to believe is being said. It just it doesn't make sense. But I'm know, just torn. Between they go online and they have pictures of, you know, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Ken, Ken Griffin, maybe I don't know. Ten years ago, I mean, I've interviewed him a bunch of times, but there's a picture of us standing next to each other, and uh, you know, I t- we, we both, I think, tried to look nice, like, like you know, we were being nice to each other in the picture. And of course, you know, they, they send that around as if it's you know proof of some kind of conspiracy.
7: I have never been told to say ever to say anything after and after thirty years. I, I don't know whether maybe maybe it's coming. You just come
4: up with <laughs> all the obnoxious opinions yourself, right?
7: Right. <laughs> I have my own that get me in enough trouble. Although coming well, up, they, although I need. I'm just getting my instructions. Are you getting your <laughs> instructions from from Ken? Uh, I, maybe <laughs> from Ken. He's I got, got the hotline. It. Let's go.
0: This might be a good time to remind you to follow us on Twitter. We're at SquawkCNBC. Let us know what you think of the podcast. And speaking of being social, ever wonder who thought up Peloton's leaderboard and high fives? Amplitude CEO Spencer Skates has the origin
3: story. One of our customers, Peloton, figured out that users who used a social feature during a workout were much more likely to work out.
6: By the way, I use the high fives and I like it.
0: Me too, Andrew. Amplitude's direct listing and venture capital legend Bill Gurley on why this is so much better than a traditional IPO. That's all right after this.
5: At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
0: Is there anything you can't do?
5: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
0: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. a leading global asset manager.
0: Welcome back to SquawkPod. Our next story is about a direct listing on the NASDAQ. The company is Amplitude. It's a nine-year-old, very well-funded, four billion dollar startup that sells digital optimization software. But you'll hear a proper explanation of that a little bit later. Anyway, what Amplitude does is only part of why we're so interested in this market debut. The other part is Bill Gurley. Now, if you've ever ventured into the Silicon Valley venture capital space, you'll have heard of him. As a general partner at the VC shop Benchmark Capital, Gurley has backed Zillow, Stitch Fix, and famously, Uber. That last one was a $10 million investment that yielded the firm $8 billion. So Benchmark is one of Amplitude's many impressive backers, and Bill Gurley also happens to be a very vocal critic of a company's typical exit to the public markets, the IPO. He's been pointing out flaws in the IPO process for years, and when the SEC approved changes to an alternative, the direct listing process back in 2020, he said the move heralded the end of traditional IPOs. Here he is on closing bell back then.
1: I think it will be very hard for anyone to argue, whether it's a traditional IPO or a SPAC, that that's going to be better than a direct listing with a primary offering. This is so elegant, so efficient. Um, It actually has fewer steps than an IPO. Um, It's it's wonderful. I, I do think every single company will move this route.
0: No surprise, Amplitude isn't going to IPO. It's listing directly, following in the footsteps of Slack, Spotify, Roblox, and others. The flaw in IPOs, as Bill Gurley and plenty of other VC voices have pointed out, is the pricing model. When bankers and institutional investors price a company's first trade, that trade is often too low, meaning it's lower than what the rest of the market is willing to pay for shares of that stock. In the case of companies like Airbnb and DoorDash, which had huge pops on their first days of trading, an off-the-mark IPO pricing from bankers meant missing out on billions of dollars. Here's Bill Gurley again back in December.
1: I can't imagine in my mind when you can do a primary offering through a direct listing Why any board or um or CEO or founder would choose to go through this this archaic process that has resulted in massive one-day wealth transfers straight from the founders employees and investors to the buy side in 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 2018 it was 6 billion in 2019 it was 7 billion this year it's going to be over 34 billion dollars in one-day giveaways
0: Now, one of the main reasons a company goes public in the first place is to raise capital. And if bankers had priced either of those companies closer to where the stocks closed on their first days of trading, they could have each raised double the amount of cash. Direct listings work a little differently. So before Amplitude's debut, Bill Gurley and Amplitude CEO, Spencer Skates, joined our TV broadcast to tell us all about it. Here's Andrew.
6: Spencer, it's nice to see you, congratulations. Uh, on on this milestone this morning Uh, for those uninitiated in terms of what amplitude does why don't you try to explain it and then maybe we can dig in
3: yeah amplitude helps companies build data-driven products we take the same tools that facebook and netflix has and bring them to the rest of the market today we have 26 of the fortune 100 including companies like twitter dropbox atlassian walmart and ford What, what do you mean by that Well, we help people understand how people are using their online products, whether it's the mobile apps, the websites, where they're getting stuck, what features they like, what they don't like, uh, what things frustrate them. One of our customers, Peloton, figured out that users who used a social feature during a workout were much more likely to work out uh, subsequently, and they ended up building in new features like high fives and leaderboards to to help them uh, engage better in their product and continue to build a, a workout habit.
6: I like that. By the way, I use the high fives and I like it. Um, uh, it helps. Hey, Bill, uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this particular transaction and so many has been uh, your commentary online and elsewhere about what's happening in the IPO world and really your push for direct listings and SPACs like this one.
1: Why? Well, look, I, I couldn't be more excited that Spencer and his company have chosen to take this path. And if I've mentioned many times before, the legacy IPO process has has Devolved into this process where uh, huge one-day gains are transferred from the investment banks to their trading clients, and that number is 200 billion over the past 40 years, but t- but 30 billion just last year. So it's actually gotten worse. Um, there's a modern way to do it. You can actually use supply and demand to determine price and allocation, and that's what the direct listing does. That's how every bond is priced. That's how everyone. I think most intelligent people assume markets work. It's just they don't. Um, and so it's so great to see these smart, young founders pushing forward to, and taking an approach that I think is, uh, is much better for the company, much better for employees, better for investors, and fits better with the fiduciary duty that we all have on the boards of these companies.
6: So I just want to go back on that because you said it fits better with the fiduciary duty. Do you believe that IPOs effectively... violate
1: fiduciary duty? What were we going to say? Violates fiduciary duty? Yes. Yeah, I think knowingly heading into a transaction where you're going to take on. So in last year in 2020, the average IPO was underpriced by 50%. If you add in a 7% fee on the investment bank, that's a 57% cost of capital. Find me any professor, any finance professor, where a company that's got the possibility of going public, so it's highly legitimate, should have a 57% cost of capital. I don't think you can find it. Um, so yeah, I think I think selling your shares in your company at a knowing discount and using things like thirty x over subscribe um, is nutty. Anyway, back you know back to Spencer and his team, I just couldn't be more excited that a group of young founders is moving in this direction. And um, Jay Ritter put out some data at the end of August that you guys probably saw, where he analyzed all the companies that have chosen the direct listing path and they've wildly outperformed their IPO peers, which I think is interesting and highlights the quality of the decision-making of the people that are choosing this path.
6: Hey, Spencer, we have a lot of uh, viewers, entrepreneurs like, like you hoping to do what you've done uh, but also thinking through some of these issues, I imagine every Wall Street bank in America uh, came knocking on your door saying, do an IPO. And then you got probably every every SPAC sponsor in America these days knocking on your door as well, given what's happening right now. How did you make the choice? And, and was there a moment it, was there ever a moment where you thought the IPO route was actually what you should be doing? And you had to convince uh, you didn't have to convince Bill, but others.
3: Yeah, it did take some work uh, to work with our board and our existing investors to convince them a direct listing was the best path. Uh, I think the craziest thing to me is that traditional IPOs underprice companies, Bill mentioned that on average last year, traditional IPOs underprice companies by 50%. And so if I'm a CEO and I'm selling stock, I want to get the best price for that stock out on the open market. Selling a dollar selling for 50 cents absolutely makes no sense at all. And so that's why the market-based pricing of a direct listing is a much superior path to, to taking companies public. Um, I actually wrote a founder's letter in our S1 where I strongly recommended every single CEO looking at taking their company public these days do a direct listing. Uh, the traditional path was designed 50 years ago when there's much less information about companies out there and you really need bankers to go and sell your stock. These days, a lot of public market investors knew Amplitude before we were out there. Uh, We actually did a round right before we went out with uh, a few public market investors. And so just given where things are at today, to Bill's point, uh, it's much better to do a market-based pricing for your stock.
6: Hey, Bill, uh, before we let you go, what do you make of what's going on in tech right now, valuations? Obviously, there's a lot of... uh anxiety about inflation. You're seeing just in the public markets, a bit of a rotation in terms of the valuations and multiples on on some of these companies. Um, Put it in perspective for us.
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about this on the air before, but we've had very, very low interest rates for a very long period of time. When you look at companies like Amplitude, these enterprise SaaS companies that have repeatable revenue and expanding that dollar retention, um, you know, The investor group gets very excited about taking those um, revenues and profits way forward into the future. And if your discount rate is tiny because interest rates are low, you end up with these outsized valuations. I think the reason people are talking about inflation, because that's the one thing that people worry could come and spook interest rates and send them north. I think it's I think it's very I don't think we've ever been at this place before. And so it's very hard to predict, you know, what's the Fed going to do? How that how's that going to affect inflation? How will that come around to these tech stocks?
6: Fair enough. Uh, Bill, Spencer, thank you. Congratulations and good luck. Thank
5: you so much. Cheese will be next.
0: Next on SquawkPod, Ford is taking the supply chain into its own hands. An historic push for electric vehicles and for jobs and for chips with CEO Jim Farley.
2: This is a really big day for Ford. This is our biggest manufacturing facility in the history of our company. And as you know, we're the number one auto employer in America. So
5: it's a big deal.
0: We'll be right back. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for Details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Stand by, Joe. Three, this
0: is Squawk Time.
1: One is Mike Q.
7: Good
0: morning and welcome
7: to Squawk Box here on CNBC. On Squawk Box, the most important business show on TV, yes. Andrew. The, the mo- most important one. The most important one. You Andrew. know where I heard that? You were, I heard it on right Squawk Box. Yep. I heard No, we're talking about this. Uh, we're, we're talking
6: more about Carlos Watson and this, this Aussie, Aussie
3: situation. Did you see it, Beck? I did. We, the response
4: it's, that they gave?
7: No. There's
6: now uh, examples of <laughs> it's awesome. all of their ads that um, have these quotes about them. Well, what they They're were their saying their own, about Amazon
4: Prime. So, so really many of the quotes, though,
6: their come own from, like, paid content <laughs> ads or other weird things that were basically said by them. By them. And then it's attributed it to other news organizations as if they said it
7: but, about the whole thing. But we digress. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross-Horkin on the most important, with the heart and soul of the show. Yes. Uh, yours We're going to run an ad that says uh, that. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
4: Let's talk about shares of Ford this morning. They're higher after the automaker said it's teaming up with battery supplier SK Innovation to invest nearly 11 and a half billion dollars in a new U.S. facilities. This investment includes two lithium ion battery plants in central Kentucky and a 3,600 acre campus in Tennessee. That investment is expected to create nearly 11,000 jobs to produce electric vehicles and batteries. And the latest effort by Ford CEO Jim Farley to increase development and production of electric vehicles. This is a big deal. It's the first time in, in so long that Ford is actually building a new plant here.
7: Phil LeBeau joins us now with that very special guest we were talking about, Phil.
5: Joe, let's bring in Jim Farley, CEO of the Ford Motor Company. He is joining us from just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Blue Oval City, I believe that's where you're at uh, this morning, uh, Jim. You're going to be announcing uh, the commitment that you, uh, you announced last night, but formally you'll be doing it with the, uh, the, go- the governor of Tennessee. Uh, tell us why this commitment in West Memphis or outside of Memphis, as well as the, uh, the two new plants in Louisville, why did you pick those locations?
2: Well, good morning, Phil. Uh, this is a really big day for Ford. This is our biggest manufacturing facility in the history of our company. And as you know, we're the number one auto employer in America, so it's a big deal. We picked the locations because uh, we have three battery plants um, and, and the battery plant locations are very specific. We need affordable energy. We need the environmental approval done and we need greenfield sites so we don't slow down with any remediation for environmental. Uh, the government support, access to um, skilled labor, these jobs are very different. Uh, all of those factors. Um, you know, we need the battery plants really close to the assembly plant. Unlike a powertrain, an ice powertrain, you can't ship batteries uh, far. They're very heavy and we want them right near the, the plant. So. Uh, That's why we're building such a big site. It's six square miles of the assembly plant to build new trucks. Um, And and we need the battery plant on site.
5: Jim, you're also going to have I know you're working with Redwood Materials, uh, which is battery recycling. You're also going to have basically from start to finish the entire life cycle uh, for the electric vehicle battery on these campuses so that you can say look at the end of life let's recycle it we have the materials that we can extract from these uh, batteries the battery cells put them into new ones uh, do you a lot of people who look at that plan and they say looks good on paper i'm not sure that it's going to be something that can be executed in reality what do you say to that
2: well we disagree uh this is something we studied we have to do this phil You know, look at the chip situation. We have to insource the batteries. We have to learn how to manufacture them in this country. We can no longer import raw materials from halfway around the world like cobalt. Um, These these materials have to come from North America. We scrap in, in battery manufacturers a lot of batteries. We need to recycle those into the manufacturing process as quickly as possible. And as you said, at the end of life, we have to get those raw materials back into the manufacturing system. I think what you're learning here and seeing from Ford is not just a big investment scale electric vehicles, a million vehicles worth of batteries in this case, but we are creating a local supply chain that's circular. So we don't have to depend on anyone.
5: And this kicks in, what, 25 is when we see uh, production at the uh, F-Series, electric F-Series plants just outside of Memphis, and the battery plants come online. So do we see real ramp-up in production, let's say 25 through 28 and then into 29?
2: Well, look, we're ramping up now. We have almost 20 gigawatt hours. The uh, Mach-E and the F-150 are completely sold out. F-150, we're above 150,000 orders now. So we're, we're not waiting for anyone. We're in the market now it's show not tell time and yes this is going to be an, a further ramp up of our battery electric volumes as i said a million units worth of battery capacity just for ford so do the math you know we sell about two two million vehicles in the united states this announcement alone is a million vehicles worth of battery so it's a very large scaling we're not going to tell everyone what the what the product is But we have a whole full F-Series lineup. We're the best-selling vehicle in America. Uh, We sell over a million F-Series, and we're going to build lots of new kinds of ground-up battery electric F-Series in this plant.
5: Uh, Jim, you mentioned the chip crisis. Um, Give us some sense of where you guys are right now in terms of when you believe we're going to start to see some improvement in the supply of chips as you move into the fourth quarter.
2: Well, Phil, you know, Ford was, was really uniquely disadvantaged in the second quarter. We lost 50% of our production. Our competitors lost much less in the second quarter. That's because of the Renesas NACA 3 facility burned down in March. They're up in to speed now. We're improving our, our, our shipments to dealers now. Our, our inventories are growing very fast actually at Ford. Our production in the third quarter is marketably better than the second quarter at Ford. Things are getting better, uh, but it's so far short of demand because we have this all new lineup. Plus, you know, the, the uh, Malaysia shortages on chip processing and packaging uh, because of COVID. So, I, you know, I think it's safe to say that we're gonna be short of these key electronic components, probably through the end of next year. And we should count on that. The good news is the pricing environment is extremely strong right now. And thankfully we have a really strong captive. So all those returning lease and finance vehicles, they're worth a lot more than we thought. So that's helping to offset a lot of the production losses.
5: And Jim, real quick on COVID-19, Uh, The vaccination mandate has become a hot-button issue with so many corporations. Where is Ford right now, both with your hourly workers as well as with your salaried staff?
2: Good question. You know, we have populations of Ford that require vaccination, like myself. My whole uh, leadership team, our medical staff, they're all vaccinated. That's required. uh, No questions asked. Uh, When it comes to the larger population of Ford, you know, we want people to get vaccinated. And we've invested a lot in education to do that. We're doing a survey right now to find out how many of our employees are vaccinated. Uh, You know, we're really excited about uh, the mandate. We'll work with our union partners. It requires collective bargaining in some cases. Um, And uh, I saw Ray Curry last night. We talked about it. You know, we'll work through this. Um, But at Ford, you know, we think vaccination is mission critical
5: for the safety of our team. But it's not mandated as of right now for the UAW workers.
2: No, that has to be a uh, collective bargain. It's, it's, uh, it's part of the process. Uh, and as I said, uh, raise a new head of the UAW. We're talking about it. We'll work through it. Uh, nothing's more important than our, the safety. You know, obviously, our, our playbook, our safety COVID playbook has worked really well. You know, we have hardly any COVID cases in the company. But, you know, we really do feel like vaccines are the right move. But we have to work through the process.
5: Hey, Jim, one last question. You're at Blue Oval City. This is going to be a ground up, your first all-new final assembly plant since, I think, 1969. Do you expect to see more of these brand-new final assembly plants as you build more electric vehicles in the future? Or do you expect that it's going to be a mix of maybe some new ones as well as retrofitting some of your existing battery or your final assembly plants?
2: It's going to be a mix, no doubt about it. Uh, but we're really excited about this grand, brand new because it allows us to be carbon neutral, you know, zero waste uh, landfill, you know, 100 uh, percent recycling of the water. It's just a, a great uh, big growth opportunity. You know, what we found so far is 80 percent of the people buying mach or have a reservation for F-150 are new to Ford. So these are growth opportunities for the company. In the case of a growth opportunity where you're going after a new market or there's incremental growth, we can build a new facility. Uh, but it's going to be mixed. We're going to have to convert a lot of facilities, as we're doing in Oakville uh, and and all over the country. Uh, What I'm really excited about is the insourcing of these batteries. These are new jobs. There are 11,000 jobs, uh, good jobs for for Americans, and and that's going to be additive. As we insource, we can offset the efficiency in the assembly area for the job loss for these electric vehicles, and so this is going to be a net gain for the company.
5: Jim Farley, CEO of the Ford Motor Company, joining us from Blue Oval City, just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. Jim's like a politician today. Jim, have a good day. I know you're with the governor of Tennessee this morning, with the governor of Kentucky this afternoon. A big day with a couple of big announcements. Uh, Thank you, Jim, for joining us. Guys, I'm going to send it back to you in the studio. You know, we talk about these EV commitments, and I think sometimes maybe our viewers might look at this and say, yeah, it's another EV investment this is huge. This is the single largest investment Ford has ever made, announced at one time. That gives you some perspective on just how big this commitment is.
4: A big commitment with some big jobs numbers riding on it, too. Yeah. So that is going to be something to see. You said he's like a politician. That's why. Politicians want to go where the jobs are with this stuff, too. Phil, thank you. Really interesting.
0: That's QuackPod for today. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or even on Twitter. You know where to find us. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.